We've, uh, we're going through the book of Acts, working through the book of Acts, and we're calling this ser- sermon series uh, Jesus' Mission Continues, and we're looking at disciple-making in the early church. We want to look at the early church <clears throat> to figure out what lessons we can learn to apply to our vision of worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, this week, we have a, it's a little bit of a larger section. It's not a huge section. Um, we're going to hit 17, uh, verses 16 to 34. So if you have your Bible, you can open to uh, chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. And I'm titling this sermon, The Unknown God. God made known. And Paul shows us three elements of a gospel conversation. First is the correct motivation. Second is factors of a gospel conversation, and those are to confront disbelief, to introduce Jesus, and to explain the correct response. And finally, uh, Paul shows us responses to a gospel conversation. Again, the three elements of a gospel conversation are the correct motivation, factors of a gospel conversation, and responses to one. We'll go ahead and get started right into that um, that passage we're going to start reading in verse 16. It says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshipped God, as well as in the, in the marketplace, every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, What is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, He seems to be a preacher of foreign deities. Because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. He was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. The first thing we see here is that Paul is deeply distressed. It says that he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. And see, many people think nowadays that in our modern Western culture that we don't struggle with idolatry anymore. A lot of people think that. Idolatry is something that, as a culture, we've, we've kind of grown past that. Well, I'm here to tell you that that is wrong. Idolatry, idolatry is still as strong as it ever was. It's just in our society, our idols look different. Our idols look different. It, it doesn't have to be a statue that we worship anymore, but it's anything that I love more than God. Let me say that again. An idol is anything that I love more than God. So our idols can be things like education or power or sex, or family. It could even be our church. Idolatry can be money. Our idol can be our reputation. Or sometimes our idol can be ourself. You know, so if we look around in our society, we will see evidence of these idols all around us. And as we see them, our response should be the same response that Paul had. It says that he was deeply distressed. See, lostness... Lostness should be something that breaks our hearts. As a believer, when we see lostness, somebody who is lost, it should break our hearts. uh, Lostness is a great concern for the follower of Christ. Not necessarily because they're worshiping idols. Lostness is a great concern for us because they're not worshiping God. Lostness is a great concern for us because it is what leads to these people's brokenness. The sin leads to our brokenness. And then out of that brokenness, we see our different idols. We use these idols to try to push us back toward God and try to fill that hole in us, but they never can. See, I'm not standing here as someone who never struggles with idolatry anymore. See, idolatry is a struggle that I still, is something that I still have. I struggle with the idol of me. I think a lot of times, well, I, I struggle in, in that 
you know, God says, well, this is what I want you to do, and, and this is how I want you to do it. And I say, you know what, God, I, I hear you, but, but I can handle this. I, I can do it. You don't have to worry about me. You, know, you, need, you need to worry about you know, Harriet. She, she needs a little extra help. And, you know, don't worry about me. Or, or maybe you need to worry about John, you know, because he needs the extra help. I, I've got this. You don't have to worry about me. But see, that's the, idol, the idolatry that I'm talking about. It's the idol of me because I think that I'm smarter than God or that, that I'm, I'm more powerful than Him. But in truth, I need to be at His feet every day, begging for forgiveness, begging for power to, to, to follow through with His will. And see, when Paul saw this idolatry around him, he was deeply distressed. But it wasn't just this distress that we see it and we're heartbroken over it. We say, oh, that's really sad, and move on from it. Paul's distress led him to action. It caused him to act. And what did he do? It said that he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, and then he debated with the philosophers. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, and he debated with the philosophers. So he confronts three groups of people here. Interestingly, we still see this same, uh, these same groups nowadays. Maybe not by the exact same names, but you'll see what I mean. The first group that it says that he confronted were the Jews. You see, the Jews did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They were still looking for God's promised Savior. They were looking into the Old Testament, and they had this expectation of what the Messiah was going to be. And so their idol was a false expectation of the Messiah. So when Jesus came as the Messiah, when Jesus came as God's Savior, He didn't fit their expectations. And so they said, well, He can't be the Messiah. He can't be God's chosen servant to save us. And so they rejected Him. See, people still struggle with this today. For some reason, God doesn't fit into their box of what they expect God to be. And so they reject God. Or maybe they look through the Bible and they see the God or they see God in the Old Testament, and they, and they misread that and say, well, God is angry. God in the Old Testament is angry, and Jesus in the New Testament is loving. And if Jesus is God, then how can we put that together? But they have these misunderstandings of who God is and who they want God to be. And since God doesn't fit into their little box of who God should be, they reject the God of the Bible. So their idolatry is a false understanding of God. The next section and the next group of people are the Epicureans. See, the Epicureans were philosophers and they were students of Epicurus. And Epicurus taught that the physical, the physical world is all there is. The world is made up of atoms and nothing else. So the physical world is all there is. And the only value that remains is the physical reality of the individual. It's physicalism. The only value that remains is the physical identity of the individual. Thus, the individual was freed from fear to pursue what truly gave them pleasure. Right? Their idol is their self and their satisfaction and their pleasure. We still see this philosophy today. On the surface level, it's the, the YOLO lifestyle. If y'all haven't heard of that, it's YOLO is you only live once. So do what feels good now because you're not going to get the chance to do it again. That's a kind of a surface-level Epicureanism. But when you get really deeper into Epicureanism, it's more about physicalism, in that what is here, physical, is all there is. Um, the doctrine, uh, the physicalism is the doctrine that the real world only consists of the physical world. 
a major teaching in this is social Darwinism. Now, not the social Darwinism that was popular in the 70s, but it's kind of made a resurgence in a, in a different form. Um, and what it teaches nowadays is that we act and we behave in certain ways because that was what was best for us as a race, as a human race, to continue to flourish and grow. So our relationships that we have, it's not because we have a, 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 the image of God in us and that we, God has given us that calling and that, and that longing for relationship. No, we have relationships because over the, the millennia of evolution, that has been the best way for us to con- us as a you know the human race to continue to flourish and populate. You know, we have communities because that's that was the best way for us as a human population to continue to flourish and populate. And so that's physicalism, and that's where we see this Epicurean philosophy still growing today. And then the final one is the Stoics, and so the Stoics prioritized logic over all other faculties. See, their idol is their intellect. The modern form of this is secular humanism. And secular humanism is the teaching that humans, through our own intellect and willpower, have the means of accomplishing the greatest good. Therefore, the human intellect is the greatest good. Let me say that again. Secular humanism is the belief that we as humans, through our collective intellect and willpower, can accomplish the greatest good. Anything else is a distraction from that. So, Secular humanism would teach that for us to believe in God is a distraction from our greatest good because it's, it's holding us back. And so that, those are the three philosophies, or the, the three people groups that uh, Paul addresses here. And so what did he do? It says that he reasoned with them and he debated with them. He reasoned and debated. So to reason and debate successfully with someone, you must be able to politely yet firmly disagree with them. And this skill has been somewhat lost in our time, to be able to politely yet firmly disagree with somebody. We live in a society where people can go online and type something and forget that there's an actual person on the other side of that. There's an actual person over there receiving that, somebody that they may never meet. And so at some point as a society, you know, this, this mindset has, has creeped out of the internet and into our social interactions, into our personal relationships, and we forget that there's another person, another image bearer of God on the other side of that conversation. And the comments then become hateful. So this mentality, and so again, this mentality has creeped out of our internet presence and into the way that we talk to people, especially in the way that we disagree with people. And we as Christians must remember what James said. In our passage that we studied on a Wednesday night in James chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, he says, My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. And what better display of God's righteousness is there than salvation? So if we, through our anger, are pushing somebody away from God's salvation then we are that stumbling block. And Casting Crowns came out with a song a few years ago, um, Jesus, Friend of Sinners. Um, and it says that um, <clears throat> he's reaching out to sinners, and sinners are on their way to him, but they're tripping over me. I'm like, ooh, that, that kind of hurts, because what am I doing that's stopping somebody from believing in the gospel? What am I doing that's pushing somebody away from God? 
Sometimes it is our anger. It's the way that we talk to people. So as the gospel is presented to unbelievers, it confronts their unbelief. See, the, the gospel disagrees with our sin. The gospel disagrees with our sin. And in gospel conversations, if we are quick to anger, then that, a lot of times that conversation ends right there. Or at least the person stops listening right there. If we're quick to anger, our witness is hindered. A few weeks ago, I gave Caesar Kalinowski's definition of discipleship, and that's moving from disbelief to belief about God and the gospel in every area of our lives. So what this means is that as believers, we still need to be on the receiving end of those gospel conversations. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. If you see me sinning, I expect you as a believer to call me out on that and say, look, you're, that's not right what you're doing. And you need to, you know, you need to figure out what, what behind that is causing you to do that. What is the sin there that's causing you to do that? And how can you turn that over to the gospel? We must be open to gospel conversations with other believers without being quick to be angry. You know, however, if we are quick to listen, we can begin to understand each other and begin to build a relationship and get to the heart of the matter. And that is unbelief. Or at least to be able to continue the conversation. And that's what we see happen next with Paul. So we keep reading. It says, They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, May we learn about this new teaching you are presenting. Because what you say sounds strange to us. And we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. So this is where we'll get to see Paul show us the three factors of a gospel conversation. As we keep reading, we'll see Paul confront their disbelief. <clears throat> we'll see Paul introduce Jesus as the answer to sin. And we will see Paul explain the correct response. So let's, let's keep reading. It says, Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects you worship, I even found an altar to which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. Well, Paul says, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So Paul confronts their disbelief. And he doesn't sugarcoat the truth. Notice he is strongly disagreeing with them. He's being strong about this, but he's not getting angry about it. He's politely disagreeing with them. He says, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. See, we all worship. We all worship. Humans worship. It's just, it's just a matter of what we worship. We worship because we were created to worship. It's what we were made to do. It's like when I say, my lawnmower mows the yard. Well, because that's what it was created to do. Now, it doesn't do it on its own. Darn. <laughs> but it mows the yard because that's what it was created to do. And we worship because that's what we were created to do. You see, this is why we have the idolatry issue that we discussed earlier. This is why we struggle so much with idolatry. See, idolatry is just the side effect. The cause of our idolatry, the initial sin, is disbelief in God. Our disbelief in God leaves a God-shaped hole in our hearts. I know that might have become somewhat cliche nowadays, 
But it's the truth. When we, when we, when we don't believe in God, then there's a spot in us that calls, that longs for Him. And nothing else will fill that emptiness other than Him. And until we find the one true God, we'll be searching for something to worship. God created us to worship so that we would find our joy and satisfaction in Him. You see those other idols that we discussed? Education, power, sex, family, church, money, reputation, and self. Or alcohol. All those other idols will still leave us wanting more. See, God is the only object of worship that can satisfy us. I'm going to say that again because it's important. God is the only object of worship that can satisfy us because we were created to worship Him. Let's keep reading. It says, From one man He has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and boundaries of where they live. He did this so they might seek Him and perhaps they might reach out and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as even one of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. Since we are God's offspring then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. See, Paul says, for in Him, for in God, we live and move and have our being. See, our identity, who we are, our true identity is in Christ. He is all we need to be happy or satisfied. He is all we will ever need to be happy or satisfied. You see, the beauty of the gospel is that even without stuff, it might be talent or approval or things or good looks or money or, or any of that, the gospel is that you are still loved unconditionally by God and He has given us a purpose. That purpose is to worship and glorify Him. The British pastor Charles, Charles Spurgeon used to say that if you are not content with what you have now, you wouldn't be satisfied if it were doubled. Because you haven't yet realized that Jesus is all you need. That one cuts deep. That one hurts a little bit. Now, we were created to worship and glorify God. And Jesus tells us one way to do that. Jesus tells us the main way that we do that in the Great Commission, and that is to make disciples. Let's keep reading. Verse 30, starting in verse 30, he says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has set a day when He is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man He has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising Him from the dead. You see, it says, God now calls every, uh, all people everywhere to repent. God calls all people everywhere to repent. So what is repent? Repent simply means to turn away from something towards something else. Repent means to turn away from something towards something else. Like what Dennis was saying in his uh, testimony earlier. He said he had, he had a choice to make. There was to, to continue to follow in his sin of alcoholism or to turn to God. And he chose God. So he repented. He turned away from that sin and turned toward God. That's what repentance is, is to turn away from our sin and turn toward God. So why? Why do we need to repent? Why do we need to repent? See, we must all repent. We must all continually repent. And see, we repent first for salvation. 
We turn from our sin of disbelief and turn toward Jesus for salvation. That's our first repentance. But we must continually repent because after that, after that salvation, we are not instantly made perfect and holy. So we continue to repent. Through the Holy Spirit, we are given, uh, we are made free from the slavery of sin. We're given the choice to not sin anymore, but we still have to make that choice. And we're going to fail sometimes. And when we do, we have to turn and repent from that. We turn from that sin and back toward God. Constantly. We must all repent constantly because we still sin constantly. There's none of us in here that are perfect. There's none of us in here who have grown to a point where we are sinless. So we must continue to repent. We must continue to turn away from our sin and turn toward God daily. We also have to repent because there will be judgment. Paul tells us because he, that being God, because God has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. And then Paul says that he has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. You see, the resurrection is the proof that Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus said that he came to save sinners from their sin. Jesus said that he came to save us from our sin. The resurrection is the proof of that. The resurrection is the proof that Jesus is who he said he was. I know I've said that like three times now, but that's important. I won't get too much into this because I've already covered it fairly extensively in, uh, on Easter. So I'll try to keep it brief, but it is important. right? I'm going to say that Jesus, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then we're wasting our time and the whole Bible is a lie. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then Christianity is a lie and we're wasting our time here. But if Jesus was raised from the dead, then that means that all of his life and ministry is true and that Jesus is God in the flesh, come to live the perfect life that we could not live to pay the penalty for our sins, to reconcile our life with the Father, to reconcile our relationship with the Father, and to reconcile our relationships with each other, to fix our brokenness. Jesus came to be our healer, to be our redeemer. Jesus came to buy us out of our slavery to sin, and the price was his death. If Jesus was resurrected from the grave, that's what that means. If he was raised from the dead, then that means he is our salvation. And see, the appropriate response to that is to worship him. There we go. We keep going back to worship again. We talked about worshiping idols. We talked about we worship idols because we fail to worship God. So the correct response to a gospel conversation is to worship. The correct response to a gospel conversation, Paul tells us, is to repent. Now, we see those three factors of a gospel conversation. Again, we're to confront the disbelief. Paul did that. To introduce Jesus as the answer to sin. Paul did that. And to explain the correct response, which is repentance. Now, even if we explain that correct response, even if we explain it well, if we explain it clearly, even if we explain the gospel clearly, that doesn't mean that people will always have the correct response. And that's what we see next. Picking up in verse 32, it says, When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. But others said, We'd like to hear from you about this again. Or we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysus the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with him. 
So this is the last section. And we see two responses to the gospel. Some began to ridicule him. Some began to ridicule him. See, resurrection is not common. I think that's pretty safe to say. It's pretty rare. Resurrection is not common. It goes against the laws of science. So our common sense, our, our logic says that we have to reject that. And that's why the resurrection is so hard for people to believe. Because it goes against our daily experience. We don't see people resurrected all the time. Not physically, anyway. But as a believer, we get to see people spiritually resurrected. But to see somebody physically resurrected, that's not something that you see. And so it goes against our, our common sense to believe that someone has been resurrected. To give you a, a, some evidence of this or an example of this, um, my afternoon duty at school, so every afternoon, um, we have the, the, the bus riders go this way, the, the car riders go out the front of the building, and the walkers go out the side of the building. So bus riders on one side, the uh, car riders out the front, and walkers out the other side. And since I'm the last classroom on that end, it's my, my afternoon duty. I go out, and I unlock that door, and I walk around, and I unlock the gate to let the walkers out. And when I said that, Hannah laughed a little bit because I think she had some Walking Dead imagery. Um, <laughs> but I go out and I unlock the gate to let the walkers out. Um, and so I'm standing out there and I have, you know, there's a bunch of sixth grade walkers that come out and then seventh graders come down and the eighth graders come down. And there's a student coming down from the other hallway. I don't know where he came from. I, he's a student. I, I see him walk out every day. I don't know him. I don't know who he is. But I know he's a, a seventh or eighth grader. And he walks up to me. And he says, you know, I, I just don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. I had never had a conversation with this kid before in my life. I don't know who he is. And he just walks up and says, I just don't believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And I said, really? Well, why do you say that? He said, well, it's just, it, it doesn't happen. You know, I, that, who gets resurrected from the dead? And I said, well, God does. And he said, well, and he referenced a cartoon where this cartoon character has, um, he's seen Jesus and talked to Jesus, and he's talked to God, and yet he still doesn't believe. And so I use the example, looking in the New Testament, where we see the Jews in the time who saw Jesus and spoke with Jesus. And there were hundreds of people who saw Jesus after his resurrection who still didn't believe. And I said, sometimes you have to, you have to suspend your idea, your, your understanding, of science, to know that the God of the universe, the God who created life, can sometimes bend the laws because he created the laws. And he goes, hmm, I guess if I could talk to God, then I would understand it. And, I, and as he's walking away, I said, you can talk to God. <laughs> so it is still very common for people to reject the gospel. I was just amazed. that I'd never talked to this kid before in my life. And he just walks up and I was like, wow, that came out of nowhere. Um, but to say that, I, I want to say this. It is not our job to save someone. It's not our job to save someone. That's above our pay grade. We're not qualified for that. It is our job to be obedient and explain the gospel. It's our job to be obedient and share the gospel. It's our job to be obedient and live a life of worship. See, we offer our faith we have these gospel conversations. We can even try to answer some of their uh, doubts. But ultimately, 
Faith is not something that I can give to somebody else. Ultimately, they have to answer to God for their faith. God is the one who saves people. He might use me sometimes to bring them to that point, but I don't save them. God is the one who saves them. Through our obedience, God can save some. As we see here, there are people who rejected him. They rejected Paul. And then it says that others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul, by keeping his discourse civil, he was able to keep the discourse going. He was able to be available for follow-up gospel conversations with the lost people. And he was building relationship with them. So even though he disagreed with them, he didn't automatically turn into angry Christian guy that you see outside the, the sports games with the, the bullhorns and you're all sinners and you're all going to hell. That's not what Paul did. And he confronted their disbelief and he was honest and frank about it, but he wasn't angry about it. He wasn't offensive about it. So like I said earlier, the gospel confronts our sin. The gospel itself offends us. And so we as Christians don't have the job of offending people. We just have the job of living a life of worship, and sharing the gospel. And look what it says. Some people joined him and believed. I want to summarize this last point by saying this. It is impossible not to respond to the gospel. When you hear the gospel, there is always a response. When anybody hears the gospel, there is always a response. You cannot not respond. And see, so you can respond with belief and grow closer to God, or you can respond with disbelief and be pushed farther from him. Those are the only two responses to hearing the gospel. Believe or reject. Grow closer to God or allow our sin to push us further from him. So I've come to our point of uh, application. And we want to know what lessons we can learn from this passage to apply to our disciple-making strategy, to apply to our vision, worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. First, Knowing. Know your idols. We all struggle with idolatry. Your idol might be the same as my idol. Your idol might be something totally different from my idol. But know your idols. See, I may be able to help you see them, but ultimately that's something that you're going to have to work out with God. I've given some examples of common modern idols. Those might be yours, or yours might be something totally different. But also, know that Jesus is better than your idol. Whatever your idol is, Jesus is better. Whatever your idol is, it will not satisfy you. And that is because we were created to worship God. We were not created to worship part of God's creation. We are created to worship the Creator. The second application point is in being. So be heartbroken over lostness. Again, not necessarily not be heartbroken over idolatry, but be heartbroken over the lostness that causes that idolatry. Be heartbroken because they have rejected their Creator and their relationship with God is broken. That's what causes our brokenness. To know that they're not living according to God's plan. Through the gospel that they can, uh, through the gospel they can recover and pursue God's plan in their life. But, our hope, our heartbrokenness is because they're not living in God's plan. And finally, doing. Have gospel conversations. What do you do in response to this message? Have gospel conversations. Don't ignore the heartbrokenness that you have over the lostness around you. Let it drive you to do something about it. 
have those gospel conversations, and introduce Jesus as the answer to their longing. And tell them the correct response is to repent. Ask them, is there any reason that you might not believe? Is there any reason that you will not believe in Jesus today? Is there any reason that that you're unwilling to turn away from your sin and put your faith in Jesus? So I'm going to ask you, is there any reason that you are holding back? Is there anything in your life that you're still holding on to? Any sin that you're still struggling with? I know there is. We all still sin. What's holding you back? What's stopping you from repenting from that sin and turning it over to Jesus and following Him? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You, Lord, for the Gospel. I thank You that You sent Your Son to die for our sins, to take the punishment for our sins so that our relationship with You could be reconciled. Father, I pray this morning that You will use the Holy Spirit to convict each and every one of us of our sins and help us to turn them over to You and to turn toward You so that we can um, worship You. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we've come to our point of response. You can respond where you're seated and pray right there. You can come to the front and pray at the cross, or you can come and pray with me. But please do not ignore the calling of the Holy Spirit this morning. <laughs>